Are you recording now? Yep. Just hit record. So we're on episode 39. Yeah. Apple event. No. No. Line number six. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say Apple event. I'm out. Igor's got Apple on the mind. I've got (laughs) Apple on the mind. Well, I'm just, I'm so excited about that darn iMac. Um, Did you already order one? No, I can't. I can't buy one. I wish I had someone to buy one for, a kid or something like that. I definitely need to be like Whether you like it or not. Whether you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but I don't have anyone to, to buy an iMac for. I Okay, look. You're looking at is, him right the, here, man. This is bad. What are you talking about? I'm a kid. Yeah, I'm a kid at heart. <laughs> we could solve uh, Charles's computer problems. Yeah. But buying him an iMac. You should do that. And then it would get him into the Apple ecosystem. Yes. It would, yeah. It yeah. really would. That would be the way to <laughs> do it because I'm not going to do it willingly. So. <laughs> there you go, Igor. Only, yeah, you just, you're just going to have to tell me if you like uh, what color you like. What are my like options? Pink. Well, I, There's seven different colors now. I, I wouldn't say that. I, just yeah, I don't pick a color. Out. Yeah, what do you, just what do you want, man? It probably already exists. Yeah, like the color of the rainbow. So when my kids ask me what my favorite color is, I will give you that answer. And it's purple. Yeah. Perfect. Purple. There's a purple one. Nice. Boom. Done. It's on your All doorstep. Right. <laughs> uh, I have an iPad problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's an understatement. So just be honest with our listeners. Have you already clicked mm-hmm. buy it now <laughs> on the <laughs> new one since you have line of sight I've, to selling your iPads? <laughs> don't lie. I've gotten... You can't order them yet. All right. Oh, even pre-order? For, can't pre-order them. But I have already basically taken it to the maximum possible step. Like I've configured it and been like, no big deal. Yeah. Y'all, y'all are. So. <laughs> I'm sorry, Cam. Stop we appreciate that. this about you. That The new screen is just, is, I think it's too good to pass up. There's packed <laughs> a bunch of performance in it. Like most reasonable people would be like, why would you buy another iPad? Which is basically identical to the one you already have. I think it looks like the new 13 looks identical to my old 13. Which is still quite Except new. for maybe the camera bump. So anyway, most reasonable people would just dismiss the thought, but I was ready to you know hit the buy button. Lie number one, Igor can survive with less than three iPads. <laughs> That's right. Oh, lie number one. About lie number six? It's yeah. Six today, right? I'm excited about this one. It's a good one. Yeah. And I found We're... myself agreeing with most of what they said. What? Ooh, yeah. Interesting. We're, we just came off of review season. So yeah. you're, this is like sacrilege because all we've done for the last three or four weeks is judge the performance of others. That's right. But the way we did it, I think is actually quite aligned with what they recommend mm. in the book. Yeah, I, and I so, actually think you're right. Can we state the lie? Because I'm at a loss here as to which lie we're talking about. I thought it was one thing, but now it might be another. Yeah, yeah. The lie is people can reliably rate other people. Mm-hmm. And the truth, the corresponding truth is people can reliably rate their own experiences. So it would not be fair in their argument to say, Igor, you are a three out of five on your ability to act professionally mm-hmm. or a four out of five on your ability to write business narratives. But what you could say is, as a leader, I interpret, I perceive, I experience Igor mm-hmm. as a high performer that I would trust with any deck and delivering and creating and delivering any narrative to the senior most people that I work with. Yeah, and or, you, or I would have a hard time trusting or to behave professionally in a, in a high stakes environment. Conversely, yeah. which we talk about a lot. I have people on my team I think of first because I have a familiarity with them, and I have 
uh, trust based on us working together. And new people that come on the team, even if they come highly regarded, I have to see it for myself a little bit and, and stuff and, and provide feedback and make sure that there's alignment long term. And when I give feedback around reviews uh, and performance review season, it is structured in the you know, here's what I witnessed, here's what I observed, here's what, how I interpreted what I saw, which I think is fairly aligned with the book. So I'm not too, I'm not too upset about the way that it was presented. Where, where does the survey stuff come in and where they nerded out about that? Yeah, it's peppered throughout. So they get into distribution of standardized scores and how if you people have quirks with how, when they rate, try to rate things. And so, Charles, if I give you a one to five scale and you give me a one to five scale, I may only use three, four, five, and you may use one mm. through five. Right. And they, they talk yeah. about like okay. yeah. really in depth. So it's railing against some companies that use like a number rating scale to figure out who their top performers are and how to allocate bonuses and yeah, yes. all yeah stuff. exactly. Okay. Let, Especially with like force curves and those sort of yeah. Let, let, yeah. let me maybe start with a story. So th- this happened to me. My first job out of school, like this whole forcing the curve thing, like I, I was part of an organization that did that. So the leaders of the, the organization I worked for, r- large like global company, they determined that 10% of the workforce must be bottom performers. And I think they cited Jack Welsh for something like that. It was basically, if you're in the bottom 10, 10%, you're done, you're out. But only 10% could be top performers. And I think our experience, if you have a standard, would tell us that there's probably a bell curve, the, 10%, the hard fixed 10% rule at any given time, that doesn't seem to make sense, but that's what they said they wanted to do. What's worse though, is they forced those metrics on each team. So you had to have one low performer at least and one high performer on each team. And if you had a small enough team, that was all you could have, right? If you had a team of 20, maybe you could have two top performers. And if you didn't get that coveted exceeds expectations rating, which you could only hand one out of, you couldn't get promoted for a whole year. So if you had a team of 10 people, you were really invested in them as a leader, you were helping them grow their careers, filled with really strong, smart people who were for the organizational purposes overperforming, you were handcuffed when it came time for career advancement. And not only that, you had to pick a lowest performer who was at risk of losing their job. And so it's one of those, hey, it could be three years before you get promoted because by the time, you know, this person's been at level long enough, this person just came off of a really good delivery, like get in line and maybe three years from now, it'll be your turn to get promoted. So needless to say, I left that job. Yeah, because you were a low performer. Is that the truth? Yeah, I was forced got, to leave. That's right. Yeah, you were forced to leave. The truth comes cool. out. Igor, yeah. I had no idea. Now, now yeah. I know. Perennial low performer. That's right. <laughs> well, well, I can. And, and other jobs also have like slots, right? So for promotion. And so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you have to have, if you're a director and you, your next promotion is, is to senior director, a lot in a lot of organizations, there has to be a senior director slot that becomes free through somebody leaving getting promoted, whatever. And then, but there's usually multiple uh, people that are vying for that slot when it's made available. And who knows, that's not always uh, clear when that happens. And and so, yeah, that, that creates another limitation to the force curve as well, because it's not even a force curve with unlimited slots, force curve with limited promotion availability. Yeah, it, it's interesting that they're, I guess they chose to try to attack that mental model that's a good thing or like the the force ranking and the 
limited slots. They're trying to attack that mental model by trying to discount, I guess, the validity of like quantitative ratings. Is that accurate in terms of what? The way I read it, it was like your rating is valid because that's your experience with that person. But that rating is not a valid rating of that person in general. Yeah, it does not represent the person you're rating. It represents your perception. perception. And that perception is contextual just to you. Yeah, that's the same thing as saying as like, hey, whatever you're feeling, whatever your experience is of an event, that's true and valid. That isn't like it's a subjective experience, right? Isn't are they saying that's the same thing? Like it, and we should not equate our experience with absolute truth. Or what's the? Yeah, they're saying it does not represent the person that you're rating. It represents your experience of the person that you're rating and should be considered as such. Yeah, so it should not be at the end all reason why somebody is promoted or fired or... Yeah, yeah. and they're pretty open here. It's, hey, that's the best we have. We really don't have a good answer here. And you have to rely, you still have to rely on the manager to have an honest, solid assessment. And that's really the theme here keeps coming back to the individual manager, the leader. The role of the leader to their direct reports is so vital and everything breaks down if that's not effective, right? If you're on a bad team, you have a bad manager, people rate the company poorly. They rate, uh, We don't think yeah. the company set it in a good direction. Like We've talked about all of those things. It all comes back to building great relationships with your team, helping them grow, providing coaching, feedback, delegation, all the things that we talked about before that we've mentioned manager tools a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Those behaviors, if the leader of a team, no matter what size, a a team of individual contributors or a team of vice presidents who have multiple layers below them, it all comes back to the effectiveness of that leader to their direct reports and how good of a job they're doing there makes all the difference in the world. Do they talk about 360 reviews at all where you get people from peers or feedback from peers? And so they say, they basically say that it's garbage. So if you take a bunch of rough approximations and average them, that works in some things. Like if you're trying to guess someone's weight and you have 100 people guess the weight of a human being, like how, how much they weigh or how tall they are, if you take the average of everyone's guesses, you're going to get something really close because every it's a finite, it's a fixed thing. Like weight means the same thing to us here in the US. If you're trying to convert between kilograms and pounds, you may have a problem, but it's roughly a fixed thing. Units of measurement. When you're trying to say something like, business acumen. That can mean so many different things to different people that when you try to take the average of those, there's too much noise in the Mm -hmm. signal. And the more noise you stack on top of each other doesn't do any good. So they're they're saying the 360 degree feedback approach, the consolidation of feedback and the averaging of it is not effective. Yeah. I think there's some nuance there that's worth teasing out, I think, because on the one hand, at best, you can only get an approximation by getting a variety of different viewpoints from people about somebody's performance. It's, you can, you, it's true, you can only approximate. And at, when you first started saying, oh, yeah, 360 just doesn't work, I'm like, isn't that what we essentially do? But I think the reason why it works well for us, maybe not perfectly, is because we have such a shared understanding of what does business acumen mean, for example. Like we have our expectations framework, which is a 
defined thing that everybody can see, that everybody has experience with, and there's debate and discussion about what each, each of those things mean. W- would you say because of that, our 360 approach is better than, I'd say, I'd go even say, is good? I feel like it is. Yeah, I, I think so, because we have a mentor dynamic here where we're consultants, we do projects that are shortish in length, right? We don't do a lot of staff hog where you're just sitting on a project for years and years. There's a lot of dynamics in where people are working and who is their direct supervisor or manager. And so what we do to mitigate that is we assign people a mentor, and that's their career coach, career advocate. But also your mentor writes your review twice a year. And it's very formalized. It's very structured. We have a framework with 80-something rows in it. And so it's the review is very much, and we, we talked about this before, right? The map is not the terrain. It's a directionally correct synthesis of performance over a six-month period across five dimensions that break down into 82 subdimensions. And largely that's fine. But the thing is, the mentor who very rarely is on the project team with the person they're writing a review for goes and collects, goes to an exercise to collect a bunch of feedback, which is a heavy investment in and of itself, synthesizes and interprets that feedback and writes their own perspective, their own interpretation and career recommendations based on what they've heard. Come and to the expectations framework that has been objectively written. Yeah. yeah. But we don't say you are a four out of five on business writing. We say in the last review cycle, you wrote a deck for the CIO and you got really good feedback from the client on the clarity of uh, the messaging and the aesthetics of the deck. And it was passed around the organization and there was some momentum and buzz around it. And so the thing you created was uh, helped influence this broader set of decisions. That's a great data point. Or, hey, you really struggled to get through this deck and it took you twice as long as it should have and you had misspellings and when you went to deliver it, you were inconsistent in your delivery. That's a behavior that I observed and you need some work before I'm ready to trust you as your manager to put you in front of client leadership again. But that's still what you as the, the review writer, as the mentor would go and write down and recommend and, and suggest for improvement and coach your mentee on and work with the client manager to make sure that happens. That's all aligned with what the book is saying is like, it's around the your interpretation of that person. You're not saying, hey, you're a three out of five and therefore you're in trouble. This is where I'm always at a disadvantage because I haven't read the book because whether it's a whether it's a number or a here's my experience of you, it's still subjective. And I say I think what makes like the mentor is good. It is the whole system why I think ours works. It's not just the mentor. It's not just the non-rating. It's also, but I think the secret sauce is the expectations framework that we have a very robust shared understanding of. Because it's, I, I think it's, I think it's, that's the game changer for us. And well, there, there is that where they were saying in, in the book, one thing may mean a, a range of definitions to a group of people. Mm-hmm. And I think we do put a tremendous amount of effort into getting very clear and granular about what each thing means. Yeah. And, and, and then we get a, a sample size of, of a lot of people going through the same mm. like cohort rank. And so I think that's, and we don't try to break down C plus really well or Java really well or AWS really well. Like we don't get into that granularity in our expectations framework. It's around problem solving. And you can apply that to an accounting problem or a programming problem or a strategy problem. 
And so I think we have a little bit of a benefit in the way that it's written, but I think you're right. We have a deep shared understanding that does not exist most places. And and yeah. I don't think you can really rely on having people create that because it takes a lot of work and I yeah. just don't see it yeah. out in the wild that much. Yeah. But I, I think that is the, maybe as a, okay, now let's think about what advice to give to leaders, managers of teams that don't operate in the nirvana environment that we do because we've got it made because we've got all the right components in place. I think my advice would be, regardless of what performance management system you have in place, I think my advice would be really clear through your one-on-ones and all of your interactions with your team on what your expectations are of them. And you should be talking about what does it mean to have business acumen, even if there isn't a shared organizational definition like there is for us, which, by the way, we still have to interpret and debate. It's like a living thing that has to be reinterpreted over time. I, I think that's my takeaway is that re- regardless of how you rate somebody and evaluate their performance, the best thing to do is just to get really clear on what your expectations are. Like in this meeting, when you interact with these clients, I expect you to do A, B, and C. You know? And if you don't, that's a bad thing. If you do, that's a good thing. Do more of it, which ties back to our feedback conversation, but yeah. obviously feeds into how we rate people's performance too. But think about how we do it. There's a key message in there. It's a narrative, right? It's a career narrative where we say, okay, in this dimension, we're going to write three paragraphs around some examples of what happened over the last review cycle, what you demonstrated, maybe where you should grow. And then you always get two or three sort of career focus areas at the end, which are here the, mm-hmm. the, the most important, the prime first among equals things to go and work on and and represents what's next for you in your career. All of that is around like a narrative, a a key message that is concise and direct and anchored back to a a consistent standard. But it's it's an interpretation, right? You could have four people at the same level on the same project, doing the same types of work with a career development point in the same area that says something different based on where they're at in their careers and and what you experienced, right? The wording could be different. There could be some nuance here. One person may be really good at solving the problem, but not explaining it. The other person, vice versa. But it may all be in the problem-solving space. And so I think the importance here is that you focus on those key messages and you're you're essentially giving someone a map, a career map. You're not quantitatively, retroactively like scoring them across a set of criteria that are misinterpreted wildly differently between leaders. I think that's the anti-pattern there in the book. And sometimes we'll do that internally too. And that's when uh, I I get, it's a trigger for me in in some of our reviews where we'll start using terms that are not quite in the EF. And so we'll say, oh, this person doesn't have enough executive presence or something like that. And that always triggers me. So what the hell does that mean? Igor, you do get triggered over misuse of terms. Yeah, don't, don't I, call I, something if it's not that thing. I'm very exact with my language usually, although I did make up the word lessest at some point. <laughs> that, was that was great. That was great. Word. It just it's wasn't a, very, a real word, but it was precise. It in was the a moment. precise word that I made up. <laughs> You're a modern day William Shakespeare. That's what you are. Well, thank you, thank you, Charles. I told you flattery will get you. And um, <laughs> I really want your and, iPad. Not the person I'm trying to pull from your project to make my life successful, yes. my professional life successful. Yeah. I would just rather have your iPad, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's right. 
And so it's, it's those terms. It's the labels that we put on people that encompass a bunch of different behaviors that then follow them around. And, I, and that's the stuff that really gets me triggered. And, and when, that's where I'll usually intercede and start asking questions. Like, what is it about this person's executive presence that you feel is insufficient? And I think that's also what the book is trying to do is don't label people in broad terms. I was having low leadership quote or a lack of emotional intelligence or whatever. This- yeah, and to give it an, a counterexample, we just started in a, a new area in December and one of the early people on the team was, I, I had not met them before and we had this key client meeting and it went really well and she came like really prepared. and. I remember after the meeting thinking, okay, I can trust you in front of anyone that we just talked to without meaning to be there. Like my, and I have no clue what, how other leaders in the past have interpreted this person, have experienced this person. But for me, in the project that I'm in with the kind of work that we're trying to do, I'm thinking, oh, okay, we're like, we're good here. And I have a, maybe a more clear idea on how to be supportive and where to provide coaching and feedback and those types of things. But it is a, it, it does come from like an intuitive place of, okay, I feel good. I feel comfortable with this and not you're a two out of seven on this obscure yeah, like right. matrix. And then not to mention some of these performance evaluations try to consider potential as well, which is you're trying to ma- you're trying to match like historical demonstrated performance, which is a, time bound and in within the scope of a review period, you don't have the time to demonstrate all the things anyway. And and the argument in the book, which I agree with is no one's really watching you that closely to begin with. And then second is how can you make a quantitative score of potential with one person as it relates to the other when they're in different phases of life and they want different things and it doesn't necessarily mean their career growth is the same or different. And so that that part gets a little weird as well when you start to try to contemplate potential as a layer on top of the, these weird performance metrics. Yeah, there's a couple of things that I was thinking about. One, which is probably not worth getting into, it's the limitations of our language. And, and our language is English, but this holds true, I think, for any human language. And the limitations are, it, the words themselves are just approximations of subjective felt experience of something. So like we're constantly grasping for words to describe our experience. And in the case of trying to describe our experience with other humans, it's inherently more complex. The other thing too, have you all heard about, this was probably years ago, where there was this buzz around getting rid of performance reviews? Like they just don't work. It's not Uh worthwhile. Yeah, and a lot of companies did did get rid of their performance reviews. Do do you all remember the argument for why? And what they did instead, because I, I don't know enough, unfortunately. But I, I feel like the biggest argument there was that annual performance reviews are not timely enough to make any sort of difference, and they're meaningless. And so a lot of companies invested into equipping their managers for more like just-in-time feedback. Yeah, the, the typical, it's costly, it's dated and stale, it doesn't include the full picture, it's demotivating, it, it runs the risk of undervaluing people and it's hard to contemplate like the intangibles like charles i've used the word transcendent to describe you before when giving (laughs) feedback for your review like how do you measure that no it's it transcends it it's the 90th row (laughs) that's right it's it's, it's hidden in the model yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna need uh, you know my 
my well, D-level Igor, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but you actually can't access those hidden rows. I'm sorry. I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. So anyway, those are all like there's several arguments against it. Yeah. yeah but the book, I, I think it, they're, this is the most honest chapter in that they re- they're like, we really don't have mm-hmm. a good answer. It's just let's calibrate and call a spade a spade and say, hey, that this is this feedback is my interpretation. Do, do they talk in the book at all about people rating themselves? like their performance themselves. Because I, I know that there are other companies out there that experiment, which by the way, the fact that they're honest, there's not a lot of great science and research to show what we should do instead. That's great. That also means that there's room for experimentation to try to find something better. And I know that there are companies out there that sound really extreme, but it, to me, it's fascinating. And it's do things like, hey, people can set their own salaries and they, they can rate themselves. And a lot of these companies, they use AI underneath to try to surface important information to help people make decisions about what their salary should be based off of their responsibilities that they take on and things like that. Do they say anything about people evaluating themselves from a performance standpoint in the book at all? I think it covers it implicitly. Yeah. It's, it really is more from the leader's perspective. But that is it. that's a key part too, right? There's two sides of every story. There's multiple sides to every story. And so... Yeah, because one thing you, we do is self-assessments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, yeah. And I, I'm constantly surprised at how many people don't take those seriously because that's your only input into, that's the only thing you can control. It's your yeah. ability to think about your performance, how you feel like you stacked up and make a case for yourself. And it's also a data point for your mentor or your review writer to see like how detached from reality is Robert being right now as mm-hmm. you think he's much better than he actually is. And there's like a self-awareness kind of thing that is a, it's a data point that can help you measure or assess that out as well. Yeah. That, that's actually one of the things that I talk to people about who want to know more about the, you know, hey, what's it like to progress through our manager ranks? Because we have three levels of manager at our company. And there's a lot of different dimensions that I talk to people about that are outside of our expectations framework, but I think is helpful. One of them is to progress from level one manager to level three there needs to be pretty significant growth and self-awareness in your ability to accurately self-assess yourself against our standard, our expectations framework. And a lot of people look at me funny, but if you're asking, hey, how am I doing? When you're a vice president, when you have the autonomy to go do things on your own, which I know is too repetitive of a statement there, then something's wrong. It's like you, you need to develop and hone your ability to see how am I doing how did I do in that meeting? And that's not, I don't, I think that's kind of baked into a little bit our expectations framework, but I, I like to make it explicit and really emphasize that this is a skill that you have to develop. And it's hard because it requires reflection and confronting some blind spots that we have and some challenges that we might face. But I think that's what we have to do in order to continue to grow at an yeah. accelerated rate. And, and I will say, so I've been here nine and a half years now. I've had reviews where the conclude the narrative and the conclusion about what I needed to do next in my career seemed prescient at the time. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, you have just put into words, like I, I completely agree. You put into words exactly what I feel like I need to be doing next. And I, I could not have gotten there on my own. I needed someone more experienced, smarter, more wise than me or a group of people to have a discussion about my career and come up with that conclusion. Like I wouldn't have gotten there on my own. There's been times where I've, I felt like deeply appreciative of 
our performance reviews and then other times where I'm thinking, hey, you missed the mark. But it's not what I talked about at the beginning of the of the podcast, which is this weird forced curve, top 10, bottom 10% nonsense. Like it's a, we go a level deeper than that. And I think we are a, an instance of what is aligned with what the book recommends. Uh, the downside is it's very expensive and very time consuming. And we put a ton of energy into that. I feel like we get the the dividends from it in keeping, retaining, growing really great people fast and in a way that is sustainable and scalable. It just takes a lot. It's a lot of energy and I don't expect most places to get there. And and I don't know that I blame them. So it's a heavy burden to bear. Yeah. Yeah, I've had those experiences too, where people say something in my review that just blows my mind. It's, oh my gosh, I, I can't even describe it. But I know that I have done that for people as well. As with just a few data points, just like you said, like you, you had that one interaction with that new person on your team and immediately you felt comfortable that they can go and operate independently and talk to whomever at the client. It's because we've spent so much time thinking about this, developing the shared understanding, doing introspection, seeing such a diversity of individuals come through. We have become masters at this. Like tacitly, we're able to very quickly see these data points and draw conclusions that are mostly accurate, not all the time. That's an um, interesting point. Uh, I didn't agree with you when you first said it, but now I think I do, where for the last 10 years, every quarter, we go through anywhere between 6 and 12 of these sessions and get really deep on them and mm -hmm. frequently gather feedback and write reviews and advocate for promotions or not. and. That's been going on for 10 years. And we have mm -hmm. people who've been doing it longer yep. and who are in more review sessions. And so there, I think, yeah, there's a lot of collective wisdom around this internally, which I think is a, is a great benefit. But we're probably going to talk about that enough. We I don't, don't, talk I don't about think it we do. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think we do. We talk about how much time it spends and how much of a drag it is on our client yeah, engagements right, to carve up. About that. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It, it's, it really is mastery in progress. There is a danger, though, because I think we, the more we know and the more practice we get, the more, the higher potential and risk there is to jump to the wrong conclusion. And which is why I love that we do this by committee, right? Like the mentor, like you said, writes the review, but it's then presented to a diverse committee that is a kind of a check and balance, right? And that's where that collective wisdom really yeah. comes to bear and helping to ensure that we're not jumping to the wrong conclusions and stuff like that. Because we are we can never get it perfect. Right? These are only approximations. And I love the whole, the map is not the territory thing that, that applies mm -hmm. here to people's performance for sure. Yeah, we do get it wrong a lot. We think we have all the data and we make a bad a decision. Sometimes you're forced to like try to predict the future. When you're making promotion decisions, in some sense, you're predicting the future. That is impossible for humans to do. So you're making a best guess. The downside of what we do is people tend to have negative anchors stuck to them for too long after they, they had, they came in as a college hire, like straight out of the University of Notre Dame or UT or BYU or A&M or whatever. And then they mess up one time at a client, someone gets a bad perception of them. And then three years later, someone, hey, I remember when they did this, what's going on with that? We tend to keep these negative things around you maybe a little too long. So there's definitely, we don't do it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. Tell people 
if you're if you really want to do this, you have to really be vigilant. As many sessions that I sit in, it's I, I have to be on constant guard to protect against exactly that, which are their cognitive biases, their their heuristics that are useful and oftentimes good, but like recency bias, we talk about a lot, that a lot. That's, oh, this person just did this thing. Yeah, but don't let that scuttle the body of work done over the past six months. So it takes a lot of work, man. You're so right, but it's and so it's worth it. it's done imperfectly, but there's, it, I still would argue that it's a, it's a positive. It's a net positive. Oh, absolutely. Right. Hands and down. So yeah. Exponential you just can't, value. You can't throw the whole thing out because it's got some structural flaws when there's no better alternative. Yeah. I don't think there is a better alternative other than dramatically using technology and data to improve things, which is still going to be inexact, right? And more art than science there. Yeah. And, and also, if you've ever played like fantasy football or something, and coming back to sports when it goes to performance, there's so much more feedback, so many more things are measured. And it's a much more finite like pool of understood things, right? Like passer rating in the NFL mm-hmm. has a formula mm-hmm. for it. And there's yeah. a maximum. And you go and you do your fantasy draft at the beginning of every year and you see how people perform the, the last couple of years. And it's like it sometimes it just doesn't work. And so I think the more data you have certainly can help you. And, and maybe this also supports the book. I would like that data to be collected about me so I could take it and interpret it and make adjustments. I don't know if I want that data taken about me and folded into a unilateral career or performance decision that I don't get to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And, and so maybe yeah. that's where I draw the line. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So yeah, overall, the chapter could have been half as long 25% as long, take all the nerd speak out, which I appreciate. I just, that's not what I'm looking for in, in this particular book. And it's got some pretty sound advice, I think. What What's your sort of conclusion on the chapter, Igor? I, this is another one of those chapters, which I was a big fan of that really, really hit me when I first heard it. I think I, I mentioned it a couple episodes ago that I was you know listening to this book when I was, I was going through a bit of a struggle period. And and this chapter really hit along with, with the other one as well. And I didn't mind nerding. If you're addressing a broader audience, some of the statistics and stuff like that isn't interesting. I'm heavy into like customer research, you know, qualitative, quantitative studies. So some of the background on the research was actually really awesome to read, but that's because it aligns with my kind of day job interests and stuff. Oh, that's interesting. So you appreciated it as a, as, as a, like a research practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, for a broader business audience who this is aimed at, I can completely see your point. And I would, a good editor, I think, would have discouraged them from including it. Certainly, there's a level of credibility there around the debunking. I just, it's, it was too much. And, and some folks, the green, the blue thinkers, might need that extra detail while you might just take it a peek. Yeah. Anything else you took away from the chapter, Igor? I know you said this one hit you hard at a key moment in your career. So what else? Just the big, the biggest part for me was don't assign like things to people as like a scarlet letter because it's much more complicated than that. And everybody experiences individuals differently. And I might be a three out of five professionalism for Robert, but a five out of five for Charles when I work with him. And that might be for a lot of different reasons, um, not just, you know, higher levels of standards and so on. So that, that, that was the biggest takeaway for me is you can very reliably express your experience with another human being, but I think it's very unreliable to objectively rate them as a person. 
in, in any given area, unless there's an objective measure that goes within like a quarter mile time or whatever. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. So on that note, I, I think we can have some pretty clear guidance if you're in a leadership position, whether you're in these sort of old school, numerical, quantitative, unclear performance review processes and and governance structures. When you're working with your people, think about the key messages, think about the successes, opportunities for growth, and what where do you want to see where what's next for your people? Is it the and have you been giving feedback and working on having conversations around growth in these areas? Is anything coming in here that should that's a surprise? That's not a good sign. And really think about this as a map. It's not the terrain. It's a directionally correct synthesis and narrative around your team's career growth that is tailored to them and will help them get to the next level, double down on strengths, remediate some weaknesses or opportunities for growth if needed, and focus on that level. And from a position of, here's how I experience you. When you did these things, this is what I interpreted. This is how I think you could continue to do that or get better. And I think you'll be in a good spot. I know I didn't read the book, but I guess the the last thing that I would say is that performance evaluation should be a dialogue amongst parties, not done unilaterally. Robert, you said unilateral earlier, and I, I really like that because, and it should be a dialogue between the person being evaluated and the manager and the mentor and objective third parties. Like the more people that you can have a dialogue with about you know, a person's performance against whatever expectations you, you measure them against, probably the better. Because I think in my experience with people who have been rated quantitatively, it's like, where the heck did that number come from? Like, how did they arrive at that? And that's like a, that's like a code smell, right? That's when you know things have broken down significantly is when, when it's done in a vacuum and there's no conversation or justification for it. And, and I would say I'm so glad that I'm at our company because I don't, how would I explain why I rated somebody a three or a four without something like an expectations framework? Like I'd have to look them in the eye and say, hey, I'm sorry, I had to pick. I had to pick because the company policy is there's got to be at least one underperformer and one overperformer. I, that I would feel terrible in that situation. I'd feel helpless. I just, if you're a leader feeling that way, come talk to us because maybe you should come work for us because you'll never be put in that situation. Charles, you're so right around the dialogue. That that was really well put. I like that a lot. It This is not an asynchronous unilateral thing that you just go and create and throw over the wall. And then that's the truth for always and forever. And it's in a permanent file. This is an ongoing discussion, just like you would have with any other core relationship in your life. This is an ongoing thing. And, and it's, it requires tweaking, right? Not big swerve adjustments, the little tweaks over time is the most effective path forward. Yeah, that's, I love how you put that. I, I really, that really helped me. Thank you. Igor, any closing thoughts? I saw you went off mute. Went back well, on mute. <laughs> Charles, a transcendence five out of five score. But Excellent. Then I, but yeah. then I was like, don't make fun of Charles. <laughs> I, I thought that would have been perfect. You should have done it. We'll count it as potential funny. I'm, I'm yes, flattered, I'll, Igor. I'll talk to your mentor. <laughs> yes. Igor, any closing thoughts, man? We're getting close. We're, we're over the hump. We're two-thirds of the way through the book. We've only got three lies left. I think we've gone through some of the kind of juicier, controversial, hot take ones. I think it's a nice, smooth road home from, from here on out. 
yeah, so just looking at it now, people have potential, work-life balance matters most, and then leadership is a thing. So we're... Leadership is a thing. Yeah, there you go. Probably uh, my favorite chapter in the book and something that was pretty eye-opening to me and it talks about qualities of leaders and what it means to to be a leader and leadership potential. I'm looking forward to coming down the stretch with y'all and I, I really enjoyed these discussions. I thought they've been really insightful mm-hmm. and, and helpful. So thanks for taking the time. Thank y'all. Awesome. Was good. Thanks. Have a good one. Right. That's it for today. Thanks for joining and don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WannaGrabCoffee or drop us a line at hello at WannaGrabCoffee.com.